Thanks everyone for tuning in to this Choir Nerd. I'm pleased to have Marianne LaCrosse, founder of Suono Artist Management, on the podcast today. Uh, Marianne has been in artist management, consulting, and project management in the field of classical music for over 20 years. She's the former general manager and education programs director at Music at Menlo, an inter- internationally acclaimed summer chamber music festival and institute in California. Uh, Marianne received her undergraduate degree in viola performance from, is it Peabody? Is that how we pronounce that? Peabody. Peabody. So that's a joke when people do that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Institute at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and was recognized among Musical America's worldwide top 30 professionals of the year for 2019. This year, Marianne launched her own artist management company, Suono Artist Management, and currently represents the Jasper String Quartet, violinist Rachel Allen Wong, Baroque Ensemble Twelfth Night, uh, flautist Amir Farsi, the Boarte Piano Trio, uh, Canelakis Brown Duo, pianist Michael Stephen Brown, cellist, cellist Nicholas Kenalakis and Kenalakis. What pronounce that again? Kenalakis. Kenalakis. And last but not least, the Bird Ensemble, a Renaissance vocal group that I direct. Marianne, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. For those tuning in, if you have a comment or question, feel free to drop that in the chat and we will uh, get to them as we can. Uh, we'll also have a Q&A at the end of the podcast, so you can you can ask your questions then also. Okay, Marianne, how did you get into arts management? Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on the show. And I, I love how we both have pictures of the Cascade Mountains behind us, even though... <laughs> Um, well, actually, like, you don't see this on your end, but the background of mine is just my home. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, as you know, I'm from Seattle, and I grew up in the Seattle Public Schools and started playing uh, viola, actually, in, I think it was sixth grade. And that began a lifelong journey of my love for music, really. Um I was a student at the University of Washington before I transferred over to Peabody. And and actually, that's where my first foray into arts management or the field of arts administration began. I had a part-time work-study job at Nene Hall for the Performing Arts, which I'm sure you know that venue. Um, And I was a publicity assistant for the School of Music. And this happened frequently in the office where nobody wanted to go pick up whichever artist was flying in for their performance that evening. And so one day the ladies in the office were saying, Oh, who wants to go pick up the Tokyo string quartet? I don't want to do it. Nobody, you know, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And I said, I'll do it. I mean, I was like, are you crazy? Of course I'll go pick up the Tokyo string quartet. I would love to have them in the car with me and pick their brain about what it's like to be on the road and what it's like to perform in this amazing ensemble. The only problem was I didn't have a driver's license at the time. So I sadly couldn't do it, but that really was my first job in sort of the behind the scenes of the classical music world. Flash forward many years later, um, I, Started working at Music at Menlo in 2005, back when the festival was still very much a startup organization, only in its third season. And um, it was a wonderful 17-year ride working with David Finkel in Wuhan on this festival. And it was an incredible experience, but 17 years was a little bit um, hard for me to do physically summer after summer and being able to you know, devote your entire summer to the festival and not having a summer to yourself and not being able to spend time with your family was was getting kind of challenging for me. So about four and a half years ago, I started working with um, a soloist, a quite well-known soloist who um, had his own company. And I started doing that on the side at the same time as working at Music at Menlo. I slowly started adding more artists, the Jaspers, Rachel, Twelfth Night, And then finally, in 
late December 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, I decided to leave music at Venlo. So I continued with that company uh, with my soloist for pretty much um, most of 2022, and then decided in December to launch my own company, which I did. And in the meantime, I've added more artists to my roster. Um, for me, it's really just about, it's interesting being on the other side of the equation instead of working for an organization who's constantly presenting concerts. I'm now on the other side where I'm representing artists, um, marketing them to other presenters and orchestras and trying to get them engagements. And I have to say so far, I'm, I'm really loving it. it. It is quite different. You know, you're in business for yourself, you're working for yourself, but at least I'm doing it on my terms and I'm working with people that I love to work with and bird ensemble is just one of those um, artists that I love working with. So that's, that's kind of a long answer, but that's how I got started in this. Great. And so you just launched your company this year. Uh, like six months ago. Yeah. Like six months ago. Wow. But I was working in artist management, representing artists prior to that, just un with a different company. Yeah. Yeah. What does an agent do? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, and I should preface, I should preface this by saying, you know, people like to interchange those terms, and they might mean different things in different genres of music. In other, you know, for example, in the jazz world, an agent is typically somebody whose only purpose is to go out and get you engagements. Whereas there might also be a, a manager in the mix who's kind of overseeing that process as well as overseeing recordings, overseeing, you know, just day-to-day -day activities for the artist. So in my world, I call myself an artist manager and my sole purpose working with the artists that I work with now is to get bookings. So I'm actively every day marketing, promoting, contacting presenters and orchestras um, pitching my artists to those people and talking about how amazing they are and, you know, do they see a good fit with their program in the coming years? You know, we're typically booking two, three, sometimes four years in advance. Um, and so my day-to-day -day might be anything from, you know, con following up on emails, people that I've been communicating with. Right now we're in the process of finishing a tour, booking a tour for the Bird Ensemble, um, which will be really fun this coming fall. I'm also working on two tours for another client of mine, Twelfth Night. Um, those are in 24-25. Um, you know, so it's a lot of just day-to-day -day admin stuff going on in the background. But I'm, I'm also every day sending out pitches to presenters about my artists. I'm also researching those presenters, finding out what it is that they typically program. You know, do they have any early music on their series? Are they strictly a, a chamber music series that only has, say, for example, string quartets? Um and then I'm also looking into orchestras and finding out about conductors and um, finding about finding out about those orchestras and what they typically program. You know, how many cellists do they have per year? Do they always program a violin soloist every? You know, there's just lots of things to check into on on those fronts and doing the research for them. Mm -hmm. And how does the arrangement work between agents and their artists? How are agents? Um... Uh, compensated? Um, do artists pay a fee uh, to to have representation? That's a good question. You know, typically it's a commission basis. So I get a commission and I don't get paid until my artists get paid. So, you know, the motivation to book engagements is, is pretty high because I don't get paid for anything. Um, you know, I spend actually quite a lot uh, of my own money to be able to market my artists, to go to art, to conferences, pay for my travel. I fly to where um, my artists perform, not every single engagement, but I like to see them occasionally perform. I want to know how they sound, how they're presenting themselves, how they talk to the audience, how they talk to the presenter, how they talk to VIPs and donors. Um, some agents or agencies, companies do charge some kind of monthly fee. I don't know what those are. I've never actually had those kinds of conversations. I personally don't charge a monthly fee. Maybe at some point I will. So look out for that. No, I'm kidding. Um, maybe at some point I will. I probably should. 
But for right now, I'm fine with um, the commitment that I have with my artists and that we're all on the same page in terms of a mission, which is to get them out into the world and get them in front of audiences so that they can hear them. Is this commission style of compensation most popular among these artist-agent relationships, or does it just really vary? It might be different in Europe and other countries, but here in the U.S., as far as I know, it's a commission that's typically 20% of the artist fee. How many how so you have how many artists now that you're representing? I have I have nine. Do you nine. do you feel like that's about it for you or are you trying to add on? How many artists uh, does an agent usually take take on? Well, I think that just varies from person to person or company to company depending on how many staff they have. I'm just me by myself and right now I would say nine is pretty much my max. I've Lately, I've been having several people approach me and contact me for representation. Um, earlier this year, on average, it was about one to two people per week or artists, ensembles contacting me. And I talked to most of them, met with most of them. Um, some of them, I, I just, I could tell it wasn't going to be the right fit. For me, what's really important is, um, you know, whether or not we click whether or not I believe in them as an artist, that's huge. Um, you know, how are they representing themselves? How are they pre- projecting themselves out to the public? I mean, there's a lot of things that I go through in my own mind. At the same, on the same token, I only have a limited amount of time and bandwidth to represent artists. And it's not something I want to spend, you know, 20 hours every day working. I would like to work less, actually. <laughs> I mean, music at Menlo was all immersive. I was working all the time for the festival and it just um, got to be too much. And I don't want to go back to that level of work. But so I think for right now, nine is probably my max that I can do right now. But you never know. I think there's this idea, at least before I, um, I signed with you, so to speak. I mean, first of all, is the term agent... Is that right? Is that how you would introduce yourself to a presenter when you're representing one of your artists? Where you say, I'm their agent. Is that is that what you would say? I mean, I personally would say I'm your manager. manager. But some people say agent. Some people say to me, are you the Bird Ensemble's agent? Should I be talking to you? And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. You can talk to me. I would love to talk to you. So it just kind of depends on... Yeah, to me, it's, it's a... It's not a huge difference between the two words, but I typically say manager. Yeah. I think one thing that I learned, at least from working with you, is that, you know, we people think they get an agent and they don't have to, like, work anymore. Or, you know, I don't have to keep selling myself and the group, uh, but that is absolutely not um, not the case, that we just still keep going and uh, uh, I think communication is important just to make sure that we all know w- when we're available and all that. But uh, that was an important point. Yeah, absolutely. You're 100% correct. And, you know, a lot of people, and I've worked with young musicians, especially for a long time, especially in my work at Music at Menlo. And a lot of them feel that they have to be perfect and they have to be this, you know, spectacular young musician. And the minute they get an agent or a manager, all of their problems are solved. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, To me, working with an artist is a collaborative effort. It's a two-way street where you both have to be on the same page in terms of mission. Um, You know, this whole business is built upon establishing relationships and maintaining those relationships with people. It just, it's the music business is really a small world. Um, And it's about who, you know, and who, you know, who might be able to connect you with somebody else who's going to open a door for you. So I always insist that my artists do the following. You go, you know, to Alabama to do an engagement. And um, the minute before you even leave town, 
Um, you're sending an email thanking them again, you know, just wanted to let you know how amazing it was to be here. We, you know, are so grateful for the experience and for the opportunity to come here. We'd love to do it again. Looking forward to keeping in touch. You know, my former soloist that I used to work with was is, is a master at that. Before he even got on the plane the next morning, he was sending emails to everybody who helped him. Um, you know, the executive director, if it was an orchestra, it was the conductor. I mean, everybody, the person who picked him up at the airport, he's a complete master at that. And he's 100% right that that's what you need to do because people will remember it and they'll want to invite you back. They'll just say, oh, he was so amazing with our donors and they loved him. And um, it's just absolutely critical. And so I tell my artists now, you know, you go to an engagement, do not be shy about walking up to the presenter and shaking their hand and saying, hey, we're so happy to be here. You know, let us know if there's anything we can help with, if there's anybody you want us to meet. Um, that's just hugely, hugely important. Yeah, I actually have experience with that. I, I think it does mean a lot to people who spend the money and effort to bring you there and just to be good guests. You know, and it means a lot to mingle with them and be friendly and, you know, not difficult if you can help it. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think those those things go a long way. Uh, that That's, yeah, I think, and, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then and doing it again, you know, six months later, 12 months later, I was just thinking about you, just wanted to drop a quick note, ask how things are going, how's Bill, you know, if that happens to be their husband, you know, like, Write those things down, write down their name, write down their contact informa information. If you meet their husband and his name is Bill, make a note of that. You know, so when you write to the people, you have something you can talk about, something personal. The personal touch goes a long, long way in this business, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are the pros and cons of seeking representation? If Are there any cons to it? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I can't, I can't think of a single one. I mean, I don't know. Do you have any cons about working with me? <laughs> well, sometimes I hear arrangements where, um, like everything has to go through an agent, um, like all the concerts and there's a contract that says everything, you know, you, you make, you know, gets, you know, we get some cut of it. And, uh, but, uh, and maybe, I don't know, like, do, do you hear about those kind of arrangements? Yeah, and, and again, different agents or managers, companies may do it differently than I do. But, um, you know, with some of my artists, if they, um, you know, for example, Nick and Michael, um, pianist Michael Stephen Brown and cellist Nick Kanalakis, they do a lot of chamber music engagements. And those are typically with people they already know or they're both artists of the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. They have been for many years. Um, those engagements typically do not go through me, and I'm fine with that. Um, mm. Sometimes an artist of mine will just do a tiny little engagement. It's, it's in their hometown. Um, it might be paying just a very nominal fee. They don't need to involve me in that. I'm happy if they just want to do it on their own and, and not involve me. I, at the end of the day, I just want them to have the engagements and to have the opportunities to play. If they choose not to involve me in them, that's 100% fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, different companies may do it differently. I'm on my own. I do it on my own terms. I kind of make it up as I go. You know, I, I didn't know how this all worked prior to actually jumping in and doing the work, but different people may do it different ways. Are most agencies, do we call them agencies now? Uh, yeah. Are they small? Are they all mostly small? Or are there just mostly a few really big ones that do most of the booking? It varies. Um, there are a lot of people like me, one person shops who just, you know, have been doing it for years and years or new like me. Um, and then there are huge, you know, firms like Opus 3, which is probably the biggest here in the U.S. Um, and then there are ones that are in, in, the, in between, and they might have a staff of two, five people, something like that. Some of the companies tend to divide up the responsibilities. There might be a booking department, and then there are artist managers. Sometimes people do both of those things. I do both of those things. Um, it, it just kind of depends on on you know, how they operate and how they choose to operate, I guess. Hmm. 
what kind of artists do agents want to represent? Uh, how do artists make themselves more attractive for representation? Wow, that's a big question. Um, well, I can just tell you what I look for. Um, and I'll use you as an example if I can. Um, Bird Ensemble, you know, started 20 years ago in Seattle. And, and I remember it was, it was before I actually moved away from Seattle, I believe. And I just thought, man, this is so cool. Here's a group of like, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 year olds who are really into Renaissance polyphony. And I just thought that's the coolest thing ever because in my day, we had to study polyphony as part of, you know, our conservatory degree, but nobody really wanted to do it. Like, <laughs> I mean, again, I was a string player, so we were all like, uh, you know, polyphony. Okay, great. But I thought it was so cool that here's this group of young musicians in Seattle and they're starting their own ensemble and they're going to give concerts. This is, and I never heard you perform, but I bought your CDs over the years. And then I think I showed up at your concert in Seattle just this past November and introduced myself. And then I told you how I had, I think like four or five CDs and I've been following you and I've been tracking you and, um, and was just thrilled to finally be in town when you were giving a concert and I kind of went on a whim to um, the performance and I was blown away by it. So, you know, for me, a lot of times working with artists is, um, first of all, the talent has to be there. There has to be an exceptionally high level of musicality and achievement in your craft for me to like you. Um, I, I tend to be kind of picky um, maybe part of that is because I used to work at Music at Menlo, who typically brings in some of the best chamber musicians from around the world. Um, so for me, it's really, you know, number one is talent. There has to be a level of achieve achievement there that I can click with. Um, there has to be a drive and a motivation, you know, from the artist that they want to take their craft to the next level, that they want to take their career you know, on the path that they think is best for them. They might have a particular vision about what they want to program. My quartet, the Jasper String Quartet, has a very distinct philosophy about performing, um, which is that they always, um, you know, they want to represent the, the diverse array of compositional voices that are out there today. So every program has to have a living composer and underrepresented composer, you know, not just your typical Beethoven, Brahms, and, and Mozart string quartets. They want to introduce audiences to an array of voices out there. And that doesn't work for every presenter. It works for most presenters, but there's some presenters who shy away from that. It's not, they don't think that's what their audience wants to hear. And so we usually have to go back and forth with some ideas and we usually come up with a compromise. So that's good. Um, and then number three, what always helps is if the artist already has established connections, connections with conductors. You've played with a conductor before, um, you know, chamber music ensemble. You have five presenters who continually invite you back every two, three, four, five years. Um, and then connections with people who are fans of yours. You know, having an, an established group of people who you know, can't wait until you come back to Seattle to perform or can't wait till you come to San Francisco and, and they're there every time that you show up. Um, those are three really big things for me that I look for in, in, in an artist. Again, it's a, it's a two-way collaboration. Um, what's really important to me is that, um, you know, each side is treated with respect and, um, you know, respect for each other's ideas and wanting to move forward together down a path and let's see where this takes us. That's, that's super critical to me as well. And, and for those, uh, we said CD, which stands for compact disc. <laughs> <laughs> I love making that joke. I always have to make that joke. It seems necessary then that your roster needs to be varied so you can kind of cater to, you know, what opportunities you'll, you'll get at hand. Yeah, and I guess when I started my agency, you know, I already had some artists on the roster, but I was, as I thought about it, I was like, well, how much, how much extra work can I add on? That was number one question. What do I want to do with this? And then I really did want to build a diverse roster. I wanted to be able to, to um, show presenters that 
I represent a diverse array of instrumentation, um, ethnic diversity, programming-wise diversity. You know, it, the best compliment I've gotten from a presenter is that, you know, you're so easy to work with and you have a lot to offer. And that was, it just blew me away because I want to, those are both two big things that are important to me, you know, what I'm offering and customer service and being able to make it easy for people to bring an artist to their series or to their orchestra or whatever. So it's hard to know what presenters are looking for. I think it changes from city to city, market to market. You just, budget is a big question for presenters. You know, a, a tiny little series in the Midwest is not going to have the same amount of resources as like New York or um, so you just have to do your research and know what presenters like to program. They know their audiences typically really well. So being nimble enough to say, well, I've got this amazing flutist. He just, you know, completed a fellowship in this amazing program at Carnegie Hall. And he's super adept at doing educational outreach and community projects. In fact, he just wrapped up a project, you know, being able to talk about your artists and what they can bring. And if that matches with what, with what the presenter is looking for, then that's great. What tips might you have for artists seeking to make a living in the classical music scene? That's also a big question, but a good question. <laughs> um, well, first of all, every gig is important. You know, everything that you play number one, the music has to come first. But every engagement, every connection you make at that engagement is important. And you should be keeping, like I said earlier, names, email addresses, start cultivating, you know, your Rolodex, that's an old school term, but you know, build your contacts. So you have, you know, a, a, a base of people who appreciate you and want to have you come to their city and play or whatever it is. Um, Another reason why every gig is important is because you never know who is in the audience. You never know who's listening. It could be somebody like me. Um, it could be, you know, a presenter who's coming through town. They're stopping in Seattle and they want to go, you know, they've heard about the bird ensemble and I'm, oh, wow, I'm going to go to their concert and hear what this group is all about. You just never know. There could also be a, just a fan who turns out, has the funds available to sponsor you the next time you come through town or can introduce you to somebody else who could do the same. Um, so that's really important is every engagement you get is important. Um, as my former big boss, David Finkel used to say, this is a big one. If you don't create it, somebody else will. So if you have a passion project, if you have a dream project that you really want to you know, create and kick off the ground, do it do whatever it takes to make it happen. Um, because if you don't, somebody else is probably going to come in and, and do it themselves. Um, that's, that's a good one. Yeah. Social media. And I know that sounds really flippant to say that, well, I don't have the money and I don't, you know, make it work. However you can make it work, get people around you who can help you make it happen. Um, you know, one thing working with my former soloist that I used to work with for four years that was much of that time was during COVID. And I have to say, looking back on it, I'm really proud of all the projects we did execute, given that it was a pandemic. I mean, you know, and it was just because what else are we going to do? Like, we just were like, we got to do it. So we did all these projects. But anyways, um, one thing I guess we haven't talked a lot about is social media presence for an artist. Okay. I was just going to ask, I, like, how important that is. I mean, you know, there are some people ha understandably have complicated feelings about engaging on social media and um, continuing to spend their attention that way. Like, I don't know, for me, I've decided that, well, it's kind of something I need to accept, but at the same time, my personality uh, suits itself well, I, I think, compared to some others to social media. But yeah, how do you value the importance of that in this, um, you know, when trying to make it as a professional musician? Yeah, I think social media is super important. Um, and I know that some introverts may shy away from it. Or, you know, if you have a, an opinion about Facebook or something, you know, you may really detest it or 
but just remember in the old days before before social media you had to pay for this you had to pay to have postcards printed and mailed out you had to pay for a publicist well you still do but you know you had to engage somebody to actually do press releases for you and market your events and your concerts that's all free now a lot a lot of that is free with social media so i would say having some kind of presence is is really essential and and another reason why it's important is because presenters often want to know who you are as an artist before they even have a conversation with me um you know nine out of ten emails i send pitching my artists don't get responded to they really don't you know because they're getting pitches from all kinds of people all around the world about their artists and it's i'm sure you know one more email is just like too much but anyways um the first thing they're going to do when they do get curious about say for example bird ensembles they're going to go to youtube and they're going to look for you they're going to look to see if you have a channel and what have you put on the channel they're going to also just search for you in youtube and see what kind of live video is up on about you what comes up um, I would say that's followed by probably Instagram. It's like the second, you know, choice. How is this person presenting themselves? What kinds of clips are they putting up there? How often are they posting? Is there anything that looks kind of trashy and kind of not interesting or doesn't sound good, period? Um, Facebook is another one that I think is also important. And let's not forget LinkedIn. I think if you're a musician or an ensemble, you should probably have a LinkedIn account. I mean, it's probably the easiest thing to do because it's just a static page that you can update whenever you feel like updating. You don't have to go on there and post anything or read anything that anybody else has posted. Um, but I'm finding more and more people using or are using LinkedIn, LinkedIn, especially to find out who do they know that knows the person that you want to get to know. It's, it's kind of hugely important, um, at least in my world. So... The advice I would have about social media is be careful what you post. Um, if you're going to post rehearsal footage or footage of you practicing in your living room, it better sound really good. It better just be really at a high level. Don't put up any, you know, just on a whim, any footage that you happen to make that day. I think after a while it gets really kind of tiresome for people who are following you and they're going to unfollow you. Not that it matters how many people are following you, but a presenter jumping on and just looking at the first thing. And if it turns out to be something that really you shouldn't have posted, it's probably not a good idea to post in the first place. Um, I would say you don't have to post something every day and all of that. You can just post occasionally and just, you know, scenes on the road, uh, pictures from on the road, um, behind the scenes pictures are just as interesting as, you know, polished little one minute clips or something. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't devalue social media. It de definitely plays a role. So, I mean, you've already gone through a little bit of this, but, um, what would you say presenters are looking for? Uh, I assume that's also a complicated question, but, um, what, what, yeah, what do you think they're looking for? Um, is there something, you know, some big, big things that they're looking for that we can kind of, um, keep top of mind? I think they're looking for artists who are presenting the most compelling, interesting programs, you know, repertoire that you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss out on, um, that you want your audience to hear. Um, this is a super, super competitive field. You know, there's so many string quartets out there who are so good and they're all vying for that place on a season program with whatever presenter. Um, it, it, it'll change from market to market and presenter to presenter. It just, again, like I said, they know their audience and they know what they like to, what they like to program. Um, but I think at the end of the day, they're looking for musicians who have really compelling programming that they just cannot resist. That's, that's really it in a nutshell. So, you know, in an age where everybody, every musician that I, at least that I follow, everything they post is already quite at a high level, usually, right? 
these little clips, you know, we're not, we're not posting full songs anymore. We're posting like 30 second, you know, to a minute bits of something that I don't think the composer or the piece is nearly as important as who's playing it or who's doing it. Um, that's clearly a branding move. But in an age where recordings are already such at a high level, how then do presenters filter through that reality to find, you know, groups that are actually good in person? Um, uh, is it, you know, do they then consider reputation or kind of like word of mouth on some level? I think, yeah, absolutely. You know, presenters talk to each other. Um, if, if we want to have Bird Ensemble go play in Atlanta and, and we're in Birmingham, you know, I look at the map. How far is that? Is that a drive? You know, can I invite this presenter from Atlanta to Birmingham? Oh, let me see. You know, so I'm constantly looking at geography and who do I know that should come hear you perform when you're in Birmingham or mobile or wherever you're going to be. Um, but they also talk to each other. You know, if, if they're considering one of my artists for an engagement on their series, and they saw that last season they were at another series and they know that person, they're most likely going to call and find out, you know, hey, how was this, you know, person or this ensemble when they played for you? How did it go? Um, I follow up with presenters and ask them, how, how did it go? You know, thanks again for the invitation. Any feedback for me? Anything you want to share with me? I think that's super important as a manager. Um and then another important thing that I do as a manager is I'm constantly trying to make connections with people. So, um, you know, if I know I'm going to be in Seattle, I set up a whole bunch of meetings for myself or I try to anyways, you know, people are busy. They don't always have time to meet with me, but I'm going to go meet with the Seattle Symphony. I'm going to go meet with Seattle Chamber Music Festival. I'm going to take advantage of my personal vacation time, the fact that I'm there and I'm going to go meet with them. Um, so it's really, it's, that's part of the sales job of what I'm doing as a manager. And I think if the artist is also in a position to do that, that's also really helpful. Um, but again, it's just finding those connections and finding where I overlap or, you know, geographically when you're on tour, who else can I invite to this concert so they can hear them. Mm -hmm. um, are presenters booking at the same level as they did pre-COVID? Uh, no, not all of them. Some of them have bounced back already and are doing fine. But in my experience, um, there are still some organizations, they tend to be smaller and maybe do, um, you know, a smaller number of concerts per year, who are still struggling with their budgets, they're still struggling to get the audience back in the door. Um, I know some presenters here in California that surprisingly are, are seeing only half of their audience back. Whereas the San Francisco symphony, the last time I went, it was completely full, completely like nobody wearing a, a mask and, um, a lot of tourists, at least sitting around me, people speaking other languages sitting around me and they were here on like spring break vacations. Um, it just depends on the presenter or the orchestra or, you know, where you are in the country. It just kind of runs the gamut, I think, right now. I know that a lot of the presenters I've been talking to, not all of them have seen their budgets go back to the way they used to be before COVID and that they're projecting a long recovery time for that to happen. It's just kind of a toss-up. Hmm. What about these virtual concert things? Are you... I mean, I'm sure you're seeing more and more of those these days. I'm, I can only speak in the bubble that I work in, but do you see that as um, something that's taking off in some way across the nation? I kind of see it as being at the level it was during COVID or a little bit less. So a lot of series who had to stop, you know, of course, everybody had to stop giving live performances. A lot of people took on virtual programming, you know, recording something and then broadcasting it at a certain time and leaving it up for seven days or whatever. Um, and then as the public came back, you know, to concerts, 
a lot of series are dropping the virtual component just because they don't have the bandwidth to continue doing it or the staff resources. But some organizations, such as Music at Menlo, are continuing to do the virtual programming because there are some audience members who, for whatever reason, don't want to go back into the concert hall or they live across the country and they became fans of the organization during COVID when those when it was 100% virtual and they don't want to you know miss another summer of festival performances. So, you know, Music at Menlo is offering virtual tickets this summer to all of their concert programs, I believe. And, and some other presenters are doing that, but it, I think it just depends on, on their staffing structure and whether or not they have the bandwidth to continue doing it or not. Yeah, it's it's the kind of an administrative um, uh, <laughs> uh, feat. I mean, because you have to first get the production up and then you have to sort out copyright, you know, if you need to. Right. So it's just... Uh, it's a little bit of a headache, I must say. And expensive at times, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I guess this is related to in-person concert going, but, and I guess this is a, sort of a tangent, but do you sense that people are um, interested in coming back to to see live performances? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. At least here in the Bay Area. I just don't think that there's a barrier anymore to audiences. There are a couple of presenters who are are not seeing a hundred percent return, you know, audiences returning. Um, I guess in my experience visiting Seattle, Seattle the last couple of times, same thing. I don't think there's, you know, a big downturn in audience numbers. Maybe there is, I don't know, but um, at least what I'm experiencing in my line of work, um, people are starting to come back more and more and more, for sure. Yeah, that's encouraging. I know someone has a question out there, but but I'll start it out. Um, what what area of the United States, or do you, do you sense that has a really um, like healthy and thriving concert scene? Like where all the arts you know hubs at. Oh gosh, probably New York for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, because just there's so much going on in New York in all areas of the arts. I mean, you could even throw in dance and theater, of course, Broadway. Um, when I was last there in January, I mean, it was so busy and so crowded. I was, of course, staying in Times Square, but yeah, it, it was back to normal back then for sure. Um, you know, I don't even know how to really answer that question. I feel like it just kind of depends on what part of the country and, and you know, some organizations have sadly had to close shop or lay off their staff and they just don't do as much. Um, but I feel like eventually, you know, things will be 100% back to normal if they're not already in a lot of markets. Yeah, you know, Bird Ensemble performs mostly Renaissance sacred music. Uh, we're not a religious group, but it seems like we kind of, I guess, um, present slightly as a sort of historic or or, or that we would appeal to more um, maybe religious institutions, well, Catholics and Episcopals. Churches usually seem to be interested in what we're and what we're singing, um, I don't think very many people, there are many groups that do Renaissance early music in the United States. I feel like I see a bunch over in Europe, particularly in the UK, to nobody's surprise. But in the United States, I i don't know, you fill me in here. Um, yeah, do you, are, is, that a, is there a lot of people doing this kind of music? I think so. I mean, let's just talk more broadly about early music, right? I mean, there's been a huge generational shift in the types of audiences and musicians who are focusing on early music. It's huge right now. Um, You know, I just recently joined Early Music America and was digging through the membership roster and researching, of course, a bunch of presenters and just different ensembles. And so many of them are like what you did 20 years ago with launching Bird Ensemble. It's a, it's a younger generation. They're really into it. 
you know, another example is Twelfth Night, my Baroque ensemble. Um, it's a group of young, you know, youngish. I shouldn't say young, like as if they're teenagers, but, you know, younger um, musicians who are incredible. I mean, just stunning artistry, in my opinion. Um, and they're attracting audience members who are tend to be younger. Back when I lived in Seattle, when I was, you know, my very first viola teacher was a Baroque violinist, actually, who taught viola just kind of on the side. And she always had trouble translating to the alto club. It was kind of funny. Um, I used to go to all of her concerts. They were all early music concerts and they were packed. Pat, you know, Seattle had a really thriving early music scene back then, but it was all, you know, old people in the audience. I think today um, I'm seeing anyways, younger people in the audience, which is, is really nice to see. I, I don't know if you've been experiencing the same at your concerts. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting question. I think so. But I think that's mostly because of the nature of the group and and that, you know, the, the people that sing, you know, have their own constituency, if you will, that are often um, around their own age. And um, so I think that's that's a thing that it's that I'm actually surprised to hear of a resurgence in early music because it's a it's a welcome surprise because I had worried that at least in the Seattle area early music had hit its kind of peak interest maybe it is locally like in the 90s um, when when um, you know enthusiasts sort of fueled this interest in these this like new music that you know, hadn't been done a certain way, you know, that being early music and Baroque music. Um, yeah, it's nice to hear that it's, that it's, um, that it's on its way back up. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I also feel that, um, capitalizing or leaning hard into the academic behind early music or the sort of history can be off-putting and that a sort of more generalized approach say you specialize in early music but you also do some like modern stuff that's always at least my feel brand wise for a better direction for groups to go i don't know if you have any feelings that way because unlike you know in the 90s or um i felt i did feel like early music was being run by uh, or at least the interest was being fueled by academics and enthusiasts, mostly. Yeah, you know, which on the one hand is nice because it ticks off boxes for, you know, your audience member who's like really into history or something, you know, like, uh, you know, touring sacred spaces in France and in England or something like that ticks off the boxes for them. Um, but definitely in classical music today, there's a very... Um, there's a focus on taking the music of yesterday and relating it to, to today's issues, today's social issues, you know, composers writing today, looking back in how does that music influence what they're writing about and what they're thinking about today. Um, it's all relevant. You know, I don't want to get into a big discussion about what composers are thinking of today and how, you know, the past is influenced and it's different for everyone, but but definitely that's an important characteristic, I think, of um, why people go to music today, because they want to know, how does this, how does this integrate with my life? How does this inform how I'm living? How does the past inform what we do in the future? I think that's very much relevant today. Great. We do have one question for you. Um, Marianne, uh, do you find that there is a lot of audience crossover between genres. Like genres of music, like jazz, mm -hmm. rock. I yes. think so. But I'm maybe biased because a lot of the people I grew up, that's what we did. You know, when I grew up in Seattle, I was going to, I don't know if anybody is older than me, but COCA, Center on Contemporary Art, used to be in downtown Seattle. Oh, uh -huh. I was going there to look at contemporary art and then listen to these bizarre, you know, new music ensembles that like, that was the hip thing to do back in, you know, other than Nirvana and Soundgarden and in, you know, going to grunge concerts, which I did do. I'll have to tell you 
sometime about how I stuck into a Nirvana concert, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there is crossover. It just kind of depends on the interest of the individual, right? Like I love jazz. I love rock. I, you know, Pearl Jam and all of that. I've, I've been to it all. I listen to it all. I think it just kind of depends on, you know, where you live and, and, oh, you disappeared, Mark. Your picture I know, but I came right right back, and uh, I think I just disappeared again. I don't know why that's happening. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. I'll just pretend you're there. Yeah. Wow. There I go again, and I'm back. Anyway, I just got a new webcam. Maybe it's failing me. Okay. Um, but this, that's actually the only question I have for us. And um, okay. Unless you, you know, anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? Um, you know, I just, another thing that I wrote down as I was thinking about today's session is um, uh, just something that um, the amazing pianist Gil Kalish, who I know from my many years of working together um, at Music at Menlo, he used to say something to young musicians all the time, which is be a good human, right? Like be a good human being in this field where it's so small and everybody is vying for a spot, you know, on the stage or, you know, whatever. Um, it's just really important to be nice to everyone that you meet. You never know when somebody's going to open a door for you because years ago, you know, you were nice to them when they turned pages for you or something. Um, it's just, it's part of building up your list of connections, the list of people who appreciate you and want to invite you to their series or want to invite you to their orchestra. Just be nice to everyone. Um, and I just love that. I always try to remember that, you know, Gil is in his eighties, late eighties now. And um, I can just see him in my mind saying, be a good human. So that's, I don't know, maybe that's the best way to end this session. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that a lot. It does go a long way. Yeah. Well, Marianne, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Uh, and thanks. Thank you for, for inviting me. And thanks for putting, you know, us artists in your you know, as part of your life's work. Uh, well, very, thank you. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's really great. So thank you. It's my and, pleasure. And uh, until next time. Okay. Thank okay. you. Thanks, Marianne.